Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're here with our friend John Alexander. We'll be talking to him soon, geeking out about ML.net. But first, do we have any announcements? Uh, I had to do an unusual phone call today. What's that? I had to call my dog groomer to reschedule the dog grooming appointment because the dog is on vacation. The dog is on vacation. She thought that was pretty funny, actually. So, with Stacy? No, so no, no. Those wife and I were away in Oslo. We were at NDC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, Grandma was taking care of Zach. Oh. And Grandma took off. They went off into the uh, uh, up the coast. And they didn't get back, so... <laughs> dog was literally on vacation. The dog's on vacation. I'm not on vacation. Wow. And he missed his grooming appointment. They thought it was very funny. They still charged me the $10 cancellation fee. Well, but. you know, the your pets always go away during the dog days of summer, right? <laughs> yes, that's true, <laughs> but it's only June. <laughs> what are the dog days of summer, actually? I don't know. I think they're just making things up. Probably. Probably. Well, anyway, let's roll the crazy music for Better Know a Framework. Ah, man, what do you got? The periodic table of DevOps tools. What period is it at? (laughs) From Zebia Lab. So, you know, it's the very first element is GitHub, GH. Nice. That's a great idea. And on the other side, AWS, number two, Amazon Web Services. And then number three is Git, GT. <laughs> I'm not going to go through them all, but you get the yeah, idea. This is going to be 140 or so of them, yeah. They're organized, <laughs> organized by category. It's pretty funny. Yeah, no, they're, they've actually, well, of course, the hilarious one is HD is mercurial, right? Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that already is an element, but uh, even funnier. <laughs> so somebody spent a long time coming up with punny names to map all this stuff out. Yep. The real question is, is that are the noble gases really that noble? But I guess, <laughs> yeah, look, they're, they're all the cloud service providers, right? right. AWS, <laughs> Azure, Google Cloud, Rackspace, <laughs> OpenStack, Heroku. Somebody's thought a long this is time. Pretty about cool. This. Yeah. Yeah. The challenge you get into really now is the actinides because because and the lanthanides, because <laughs> these are both supposed to be radioactive. I mean, yeah. I love data dog. That's not radioactive. Come on, it doesn't decay into anything. <laughs> Oh, I thought you'd get a kick out of that. And apparently you did. You have amused me. You may stay. (laughs) (laughs) So who's talking to us today, Richard? Uh, I grabbed a comment off a show 1497, which we did at Connect in New York. We talked to Joseph Siroche about AI and the future. I thought he was brilliant, didn't you? Such a smart guy. And the comment comes here from Maurice Peters. He says, great show. I just wanted to comment on the statement of the future of AI relying on the cloud. Mm -hmm. Although I think this is true while building models offline is based on large amounts of historical data. This theory does not hold when looking at other fields like AI for reinforced learning, which focused on online learning. Yeah. Modern RI algorithms also rely on neural nets, but continuously train and update and use the models for decisions making while real time data comes in. This is obviously relevant in spaces like robotics, but also spaces like IoT, where sensors are continuously gathering data. So, you know, to his point, you, you know, especially I think it's the work you've done on, on IoT where you can't necessarily rely on the cloud. You're going to want the neural net infrastructure more locally available. Right. Although the good news these days is, you know, your average video GPU, even in a phone, can do some pretty serious uh, 
uh, neural net processing. Yeah, absolutely. And Maurice goes on to say, this also leads to the reality that the amount of compute power needed is actually not that large. Exactly. Once the core models are done, updating models is not that bad. Agents using RI algorithms nowadays compared to the RI algorithms used by AlphaGo Zero, which is, of course, the crazy uh, model that Google built to teach itself Go by itself. It uh -huh. also killed at chess. Uh, can be trained on relatively cheap desktop hardware. I personally don't think that it will take long before these algorithms will be used in the enterprise and might even become dominant. Think of learning facts about business processes in real time and then responding in real time, as well as using a trained model right away in real time as well. And that's a lot of real time. That's a lot of real time. But yeah, you know, I think back to the, the two years ago now, we first did that developer platform talk, mm -hmm. you and I, the, the joint keynote. And yep. the one thing I have to update on that, I mean, quarterly are the fastest computers in the world, like the, the high-end GPUs. Like, it's crazy how quick all that's going. And, you know, we make that comparison that this the Cray XMP, the supercomputer super of the 80s, has the same gigaflops as a 2011 iPad. Yeah. And here we are flying up the hockey stick of Moore's Law. The GPUs are just getting more and more torquey. Like, we can do an awful lot in these modeling solutions mm -hmm. with the kind of GPUs we have in small handheld devices. So, I'm not going to argue with you, Maurice. You and I are on the same page. It's uh, It was interesting to have that conversation with Joseph back in the fall. Uh, certainly, Microsoft's own messaging has changed a lot more to that edge compute that, yeah, you're going to have enough horsepower in the end to do a lot of that stuff. Mm. But I still think the cloud plays a pretty big role in setting those core models up. I just wonder how much we're going to be doing core modeling anymore, that bit by bit, there are going to be default sets of neural nets that we can do an awful lot of this work in. Right. Right. So, Maurice, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. Absolutely. And I just did a, another one a couple weeks ago. It's nice. actually, as of this recording, it's going out tomorrow, the 19th. Yeah. I, I appreciate that you keep developing new ones. It's very challenging. But I got to tell you, like... I realize now there's like the first three or four tracks have actually trained my brain to drop into flow. That's really cool. It's like I hear the opening chords to blue and yeah. I, it's almost like click. You're just there. Well, then I realize I, I've been super diligent with using it. Like I only use it for that kind of work. I never turn it on when I don't need to flow. Yeah. And it's a stimulus response thing now, dude. I, like I've hacked myself. That's so cool. I hear that from a lot of customers too. That it just, it just sort of snaps in. I'm really grateful. I had dinner with Mark Seaman while I was in NDC. And you missed a good show, my friend. And, I know uh, I did. And we yeah. were talking about this stuff again. You know, just just, just understanding that you can you can do the meta on yourself, mm. right? To say, what is it that triggers the right things in me to get to the right place? So yep. as I am committed to, you know, tens of thousands of words of writing for the history of .NET, flow is super important to me these days. Yeah, I bet. Well, it's super important to me too, because uh, I'm working on a, a software project that has me working about eight hours a day. So nice. It's fun. I'm Do you feel good? I'm using it. Yeah. In I, the real I, world. It's got to be fun to be in the groove, like just writing, writing, you know, it's cranking addicting. out code. It's totally yeah. addicting. Billy Hollis is right. All right. Well, uh, anyway, you can also follow us on Twitter. We hope you do. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. Uncle Owen would approve. <laughs> that is such an opaque reference. I know. I know. We'll, there are three people who get it, and they're all on the call. <laughs> 
Yes, they are. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But first, let me uh, introduce John Alexander. Uh, the last time you were on, John, your bio looked a lot differently. But one thing that hasn't changed is that you co-founded the largest technical blogging community in the world, geekswithblogs.net, before selling it several years ago and built music chart applications for Billboard magazine used by American Top 40. Uh, John sat in Kirk's chair on the bridge. He's recorded nice. cartoon pilots as part of a voice ensemble cast, is the co-creator of the Geek T-shirt found at most Microsoft conferences, and was, so we're getting all the, you know, the real important stuff out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> he was also Facebook friends with Patrick Swayze. Yes. Not many people can say that. Nope, that's a thing. Yeah. John has a passion for designing and building accessible experiences using machine learning coupled with voice, touch, and virtual mixed reality. His secret identity is a mild-mannered senior content developer on the Microsoft Apex team, which is docs.microsoft.com, focused on ML.net, .NET Core, and Docker. Docker, not Dakar. That's a country. He also is a former Microsoft Regional Director and Microsoft MVP and loves to paint, draw, game, do voiceovers, and spend time with his spouse and three children on all sorts of adventures. Welcome back, John. It's been too long. Hey, thanks for letting me back on the show after, uh, I think it was like show 85 or something wow. like that with right. Barry Gervin That's many, right. many years ago talking about uh, Agile. Yeah. So there's a whole new thing that everybody was getting hip to. Agile. Remember that? Yeah. I mean, that was right. the hip new thing. Good yeah. Lord. That's right. Now we're talking about the hip new thing of, you know, machine learning and AI. And it's been a focus of many of your shows, I know. Yeah. And uh, we're just growing and learn. We're it's, it's, it's all a new frontier, especially for, for most of us that have just done um, either line of business development or enterprise development. And uh, so that's kind of where uh, ML.net uh, came from. Well, before we get too far into it, I want you to uh, tell the story of uh, that explains the joke. <laughs> oh, yeah. Great. Thanks, Carl. I appreciate that. <laughs> that's uh, awesome. Typecast forever, John. I, that's I, right. I, okay. Sometimes, so, let's just say sometimes you tell a joke that is timed so perfectly and is so funny that nobody ever lets you forget it. Well, that's right. You you get one shot at greatness, and and that, and that that has been mine. Um, so, guys, remind me. I don't remember which show this was. It was. Uh, pretty sure it was a Tech at Orlando. Yeah. Was it Tech at Orlando like two thousand yeah. or something yeah, like something that? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Way way back in the day. Okay. Way back. So, one of the RDs was doing something actually with robotics and. Um, it was that time when there was all these robot battle shows. And That's things. right. 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 And so yeah. it was a battle bot thing that was made with a huge battle axe on the front of this thing. It had a rotating so saw, could, didn't it? It was some something fierce. Yeah, it was it was something. It was some some sort of very destructive weapon that was supposed to go up and chop um, I believe either another robot or something else. Anyway, so uh, one of the RDs was actually going to show this as part of the keynote. And he's so as regional directors were all in the room behind the scenes getting a preview. And the thing goes for about, mm, I don't know, six inches, six <laughs> inches, and then just stops. 
and the room goes quiet, and the RD is up there trying to figure this out, and his little minions are up there too, yelling, Illumination! And stuff like that. And so, all of a sudden, I get the brilliant idea of Star Wars, and I just scream out, Uncle Owen, we need another R2 unit. This one has a bad motivator. <laughs> And the but crowd you did it in that whiny Luke Skywalker voice. Yeah, yeah. Uncle Owen, it's R two. We need a new R two. Yeah, and the crowd just <laughs> lost it. And the person <laughs> that was doing the demo uh, was not real happy, but I was rolling on the floor. I mean, we're you were rolling. rolling. We're still rolling. Everybody was rolling on the later. floor. <laughs> and to this day, whenever I see Carl, what's up, <laughs> Uncle Owen? Yeah. All right. Now that we got that out of the way, we're 15 minutes into the show. We haven't talked at all about ML or anything except to just mention it in your bio. I think you just mentioned it. What are you guys doing? So uh, last month at Build, we released uh, uh, ML.net, which is a cross-platform open source machine learning framework. And really what it does is it really allows .NET developers to really start to use machine learning directly from um, C-sharp, F-sharp, in your .NET uh, applications to easily integrate custom machine learning into those applications without really much prior expertise in developing or tuning machine learning models. It has a pipeline and just kind of really helps you go through the process. So if I've used Seth Juarez's uh, .NET client-side library for doing machine learning, I know a little bit about that. Is it similar or is it m- m- at a higher level? It's really, I think it's really actually a, um, at a little bit of a higher level. Uh, it's a it's a NuGet package that you can download and start using. And basically, um, it's extensible. So support is coming for LightGBM, CNTK, and TensorFlow behind the scenes. So it, it really is the kind of the, the front end for your machine learning needs into from .NET into other things. Okay. And if you do you have to know anything about, you know, algorithms and what uh, to apply? I mean, that's that's where most people get in the weeds, I think, is they don't know what to do. All they know is that they've got some data and they want to get something out of it uh, or you know, learn something from it. Right. You know, the the thing the thing with machine learning is really it 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 gives you the learners. It gives you the way to train train your model, um, and really kind of figure out what you want to do. And so the biggest the biggest issue that I see is really trying to figure out what that what that problem actually is. What question are you trying to solve with that? Right. Yeah. That seems to be the point we get to so often now. It's just this: Are you asking the right question? Like just going through this process to get to what are we truly trying to figure out here? I have this huge heap of data and. I think I want this. You know, my hypothesis is that I I want to figure out what this is actually doing, but then do I have the right data that's going to give me the that's going to give me the answer and right. am I asking the right question? And those are that's kind of where we're getting to with the uh sophistication that we've got with a lot of uh different machine learning networks now. It's it's getting a lot more away from the actual algorithms and more toward what problems are you trying to solve? Yeah. So we, we should pick a scenario to talk about over the course of the show. Cause I'm sure it's going to come up again and again and again. Sure. Uh, and I mean, sort of the classic ones and I think is even on the homepage is just sort of the, like credit card fraud detection. 
Although that's mm-hmm. taken you know, care of. Like you probably shouldn't be building your own for that. I think maybe we should collect uh, Patrick Swayze's Facebook posts from when mm. he was alive. Because we, we, you know, John probably has access to those. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, um, I did. After he died, I was removed from from his Facebook page. But oh. yeah, I, I did for a while. But I think probably a better uh, classification scenario that people would really understand mm-hmm. is to start with, you know, one and zero. I'm, I'm either trying to figure out that something is positive or negative. Right. Sure. Okay. So what if we looked at, you know, either comments from .NET Rocks or comments on Patrick's page and said, okay, we really need to be able to, because we're getting a voluminous number of comments on the .NET Rocks page, we need to figure out and take action if something's positive or negative and be able to, to do that in a timely manner. We could expunge all the non-funny comments, right? Right, that like everything that John has said in the whole in the whole entire show, you know, that would be great, right? So one of the ways that you oh, can I screwed myself. Now I don't have a mid show joke. I actually have to come up with <laughs> you just something. Burned your joke. I just burned my joke. Oh well, let's oh. reset the Wayback Machine and go back and you can you can try that again, Carl. I'm sorry, John. Please continue. That's okay. Oh, that's all right. Positive it's, or negative it's just comments. A, yeah, positive or negative comments. And and so one of the ways that people can get started with their data then is to drop in and to just look at um, classifying our data in binary classification, positive or negative, okay? We're right. not looking at multiple values. We're just starting with that. And so once again, understanding that problem becomes a little bit more simplistic, right? Because it's mm-hmm. just positive or negative. Right. And so we then look at classification to it's either A or B. The whole reason we do that is so that we can take action upon that. And in order to be able to do that, though, this is what we would call supervised learning in mm-hmm. the fact that we have a relative sample of our data that we've already processed and said, okay, this is positive, this particular one. You know, John is great. Carl comes up with great jokes mid mid show. Those are positive, well, ho- hopefully positive uh, comments. And so we would have maybe those that with text, and then in, in the next column, we'd say one for positive for each one of those. And then we might say, you know, um, John Alexander sucks. His 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 jokes just aren't funny. That might be considered negative. Mm. Um, and that might be a zero. And so we would r- we run that uh, after creating our pipeline. We pull our data in, and then we use that to build out our model or train our model. And really what we're trying to do is figure out, okay, given something in the data, and we can think of that as maybe like a feature or what we would call a feature, and that's a property of the data that's being used, like maybe a pet type or sentiment in this, in this case. Mm-hmm you know, the actual text itself. And then we use a label to figure out, okay, is this going to actually be positive or negative? And so we use that then to try to train the model. And uh, and then we can use that model then on different data then coming in after that. And that will allow us then to take action upon that so, for example, we could throw that into a workflow or something else to, you know, kick it to our customer service account if it's, or billing account or whatever if it, if it comes up with, uh, you know, something something in there that's negative. Does that make sense? 
Yep. Yeah. So it's, what question do I want to answer? And Mm -hmm. pick the things that I want the machine learning algorithm to analyze. Mm -hmm. And then pick the trainer, train the data. Mm -hmm. And when do you get your result? Does it just like spit out a, uh, you know, when you, when you, at, at a point. And once you've trained it, then you run real comments through it and it gives you a thumbs mm-hmm. up or thumbs down, right? Right, right. And and the nice thing about the um, ML.NET framework is this is all really done as a pipeline so that everything stays, in toge- stays together and stays in context. So once you choose your learning algorithm, in this case, our binary classifier, mm-hmm. we go through and we train that model, we save it out, and then we can also evaluate that. And that evaluates for different metrics based on quality assurance to see, you know, um, how how accurate we are, how close we are statistically, those sorts of things. And then once we've done that, we can go back and train and tweak if we need to. But then we can we can take another um, set of data and predict the predict those uh, test data outcomes with that model. Yeah. And so one thing actually that I didn't mention is that when we're evaluating that, we want to use um, a portion of the data that we use to train. So like, for example, maybe you'd use 80% of your data to train and then maybe another 20% uh, to um, evaluate so that you can just go back and make sure that that you're getting you're getting what you think before you start your predictions. And then you go through and you kind of you kind of keep looking at that to make sure that um, that it's accurate. John, is binary too tight a measure? Like just the, the yes or no here, shouldn't we be dealing with some, you know, certainty range? Sure, we could. Um, absolutely. This would uh, allow, you know, it comes back in, in terms of a, of a of a float right um in terms of what they think the accuracy is for for given uh you know given a given sentiment i just want to have the analytics tool give me some sense of i'm not that sure right right and that's where the metrics that that's where the metrics really come in mm-hmm. um to to really help you you know is it how accurate is this how close you know if we give if we look at you know all those different ratios things like that it can give us a pretty good indicator of of uh you know how how uh, how valid our model is and how well it's yeah how confident it is you know we we mentioned Seth Wars already I, I just saw him in Oslo and one of the conversations going on was this training the user to not presume the computer is always right you know that that this sort of mindset of right. the tool does analytics the human has to do the analysis so we still expect you to look at that and question it. So if we can give it some numbers so that it's like the machine seems awfully certain here so that you can you know look at it differently than the machine is clearly uncertain here. Absolutely. That's what that's that's a the part of what the evaluation metrics start to give you is kind of the smells of the indicators. Right. And then you can take that and use operationalization on your data to to really start bringing that into your line of business. But you can't do that until you are at least reasonably sure that's done. So absolutely, there are always you always need to have eyes on what's coming out, and to really make sure then that you're that you're either a right. asking the right question or you're getting answers that that are not just what you want to hear, right? Or you know, it it looks pleasing, so obviously it's okay when something 
you know, something in the data may have thrown everything off. And so we need to continue to keep looking at that. So we're doing sentiment analysis, essentially. This is a message flow. How does the system deal with something like sarcasm? Like, this service was so awesome. Well, I think <laughs> depending on uh, the examples that you'd already fed it, right? Right. If, if it had something in there that said this sample was awesome or this is amazing, it's awesome, it probably wouldn't... Uh, you know, it probably wouldn't pick that one up. Right. You know. Can, can you do can you do a little like demographic mapping? If it's a 15-year-old girl, that's almost certainly sarcasm. Like, is that? you? Pr I'm sure that you could. I guess the way it would work is as you move into then a network or a neural network, you can take different pieces and parts and say, okay, this particular sentiment we think is positive. Now let's reflect on who we think is saying that. You know, what other factors you might have there of. Right what that pro that profile of that person actually looks like to see if it is sarcasm or maybe we're not totally sure so we kick that into another queue that immediately goes to um a customer service rep so that they can immediately see that and then you know they can as those are coming through then somebody can actually tweak that 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 uh value and then continue to train that that's a and in another product, Lewis, working with language interpretation, you train that model to understand what those labels are, what those, um, you know, those pieces and parts are. And sometimes it gets it right, but you can always go back and uh, change that and then retrain the model based on that mm. so that you're, you're continually getting your efficiencies higher and higher. And that's uh, Language Understanding Intelligence Service, Lewis? Yes, Awesome stuff. Well, and it's also just this, Microsoft has this huge range of, are they still under the banner of cognitive services? You guys keep changing this name. Um, they're still under the banner of cognitive services, yes. Yeah, okay. So on the spectrum there, um, cognitive services is, is really more um, pre-built pieces for you. And you start feeding in information to it. Whereas something like, you know, ML.net, is a little more custom and allows you to, to fit the pieces and parts together. And, and by that token, John, then if you really were going to do text-based sentiment analysis, does it make more sense to use ML.net for that or Lewis? It depends on, it depends on what you're, what you're really trying to do. If you right. want to it, truly incorporate that into your .NET line of business application, mm -hmm. then you'd probably use ML.net. Right. Cause you get if the you've APIs got already there. Right, it it and it, you really want to really want to have the control over that. Um, otherwise, it's you. It just depends on what you're trying to do. You could definitely sure. use even, you know, um, a hybrid of so part of it's ML.NET, and then I send it off to the Lewis API, or or vice versa. Maybe you know for you know for screening and making sure there's no profanity in there and things like that. You could use Lewis as kind of the first screener mm. and then send that on. You know send that on in to actually be classified after that. And thinking back to the comment we had at the top of the show with from Maurice, uh, if I wanted an offline solution, I'd be using ML.net. If I wanted to depend on the cloud, then Lewis. Sure. All right. Absolutely. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to retrain the .NET Rocks mid-show joke model using data from stupiddadjokes.com. 
<laughs> oh wait i like this it's actually the listeners we have to train i, forget, I keep forgetting uh, that oh. okay why do i keep forgetting that anyway <laughs> it's actually time to give away a telerick dev see how i resurrected that joke you didn't even notice it was the same you joke you dug it out man you got there i just you're the to, master i just had to frame it correctly i don't know maybe i did maybe i didn't <laughs> It's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Toolkit to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about Conversational UI from Progress, Telerik, and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot, framework agnostic, user interface controls, and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. The industry's first packaged set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots are available as part of the company's Telerik ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Core, WinForms, WPF, Xamarin products, and Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. <gasps> In other words, everything. Uh, by implementing key UI design features such as calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the tool sets, developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements that enhance the natural flow of conversation. Check out this really innovative library at telerik.com slash conversational dash UI. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Jennifer Derricky. Congratulations, Jennifer. Derricky. Jennifer Derricky. And Jennifer just won the Telerik DevCraft Toolkit. That's their big pile of awesome uh, just by being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you want to join the fan club, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club, but you got to sign up to win. All right, John, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? I'd like to th like to use Steve Martin as an inspiration for this. Hmm. If I had $5,000, <laughs> I would get all the children together of the world to sing a, a song of joy and peace. But if I had to use it just on technology... I would actually um, go out and purchase 50 of the new Xbox adaptive controllers. I don't know if you guys have heard about that. No. But actually, it, it was created by the Xbox team and shown at um, E3 this, uh, this past week. And basically, it allows you to um, hook up any sort of assistive technology and map that any, any of the buttons on the Xbox controller to that. Wow. And so it really makes a difference for gaming. And so the price point for this is going to be 100 bucks. And so, yeah, I would get 50 of those and then pass them out to uh, gamers that need some um, assistive or that, that are focused on accessibility mm. and would open their uh, – would open – that world to them. I'm I'm very much an advocate for accessibility and also starting to use machine learning for that. So wow. um, being that I have a cerebral palsy on my right side, it's just been something that's that's been very near and dear to my heart. So that's what yeah, I sure. do with it. Wow, that's just great. To, I mean, one, you, on one side, it's just providing that flexibility to do what you want. But, you know, at the same time, 
you could also plug in like high-end joysticks and so forth. If you want to, you know, go super expensive, you could go right. really nuts here. Uh, yeah. As someone prone to Kerbal Space Program, there's been lots of folks building like uh, space controller-like panels, but the mm -hmm. wiring's tricky. This would just make it trivial. Wire mm. whatever you want. Right. Right. And this is really, uh, they have, it's pretty ingenious. Along the backside, they have 3.5 uh, inch, I think, millimeter. you know, the 3.5 millimeter. Yeah, 3.5 millimeter. Sorry, uh, brain fart there. Um, jacks for every button, the D-pad, the, the directions on the back of that controller. So you can plug those things in. So, for example, on my right side, I have a real problem with the right trigger. And so I use this to use a uh, um, rock band drum uh, nice. switch for the trigger. So and on then your foot. I Yeah, using nice. my foot. And then I remapped the uh, the joystick to the D-pad on the other side of the controller. So you wow. get to favor your left side there and then use right. that twitchy foot of yours to That's fire it. off as many shots as possible. Yep, <laughs> and then you can play Halo at least somewhat with the kids. Nice. Yeah, that is cool. That's very clever. And it, it, I love it. It's just a generalized solution for 100 bucks. You can right. set it up however you want. Right. Like there, wow. I'm just looking through the, the accessories. There's some seriously specialized accessories here, like specifically like breath tubes and things like that. Right. Uh, you know, but also just buttons. Right. Good so, buttons. And, and really big buttons. Yeah. So it allows somebody, you know, without really a lot of mobility on their hands to be able to either use breath or, or feet or elbows on mm. some of those big buttons, whatever that is, right. and give and, and opens it that up. And, and turning back around to, you know, machine learning, what if you could take a use, you know, some of the higher end uh, image classification to take a look at how people are moving if they have traumatic brain injury mm. and they use those head movements or eye movements to communicate and then they can't speak. What if we could take those movements then and teach a model to communicate and translate those into actual words. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah so now cool. you're thinking a whole other level, not just gaming here, but just a right. flexible input system for right. anything we'd want to do. The very first thing right. I thought of was being able to play rock band with an actual guitar. Yes. Maybe <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But even in yeah, drum kit or any of these things, but yeah, I'm looking at this 3d rudder, which is basically a, uh, uh, a joystick for your feet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, absolutely. You know, I'm actually getting one of those. So interesting. There's a whole I'll other you know show here now, man. Know, You've stolen it. Like we, this no, we can we can with adaptive controllers. I think we'd have a lot of fun with that. Okay, well, I, I'd love to come back on and maybe get Bryce from the Xbox team or somebody else on. Yeah, yeah. To talk about that, maybe. In sure. A, but it also speaks to ML.net really well. That it's like being able to take the feed of this data from someone and learn their intended behaviors against how they actually controlled it. Sure, sure. And so you know, we've got a couple of tutorials in there to get started. And the other nice thing is that this thing is all open source. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. ML.net as well as the, the adaptive controlling stuff? Uh, the adaptive controlling stuff is is just a, is a Microsoft or an Xbox controller. I'm talking about ML.net. It's, right. it's all open source. Um, and on the GitHub repository, there are a bunch of samples that you can use to get started, along with the samples that we have on, on docs.microsoft.com. Um, but one of the neat things about that is we've talked a lot about binary classification and, you know, um, 
positive and negative. But what if you really want to take that now and say, for example, you want to find um, a value. So like mm. maybe like a airline fare price or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so you want to, tr- you're instead of a positive negative, you're trying to predict a real value, like a double that represents price or something like that, based on some of the other columns or factors in the data set. And so we use a regression task for that to, uh, in the case of the tutorial, trying to uh, predict what the final fare price of a taxi trip would be. Mm. Before you take the trip. Right. Wow. So does that fall under the category of predictive analytics? Um. Yeah, I think so. I mean, right. it's uh, it's really more, yeah, you're predi- yeah, predictive analytics, of course. You're predicting something and you're trying to make sure that uh, it comes in within, in this case, maybe your budget. Yeah, sure. Right. Right. If I if I want to if I want to come see you guys from from Kansas City and I want to take a taxi, is that going to be <laughs> is the is the fare going to be something that I'm going to want to right. uh, be able to afford when I get there? Yeah. Or if we go to go to pick you up, Carl, on the East Coast, and then drive in a taxi and do a fun road trip out to see mm-hmm. Richard. Um, what's that fare look like? Mm. It's going to be a couple of bucks. I'm just guessing. Yeah. Well, I could tell you, it's going to be too much. Too much. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We don't even need, need Uncle Owen to, to know that, right? No. Yeah. No, and and that, that sort of a, brings us to the whole topic of errors in the data and errors in the outcomes and, you know, um, predictions happening that are sort of socially questionable. I mean, there's a downside. There's a soft underbelly to the whole machine learning thing that I don't, I mean, I don't know if there's anything technologically in ml.net that helps you um, avoid some of those situations. It really comes down to the data itself and what you're trying to do with it, doesn't it? But what are some of the pitfalls people will uh, stumble into if they're not careful? Well, first off is is not understanding your data, right? I mean, making sure that your data is is cleaned and, and ready to go is going to gonna go, I think, a big way toward helping, you know, garbage in, garbage out not happen. It's something that we really want to try to do. Understanding what the problem is, like we've talked about before, but then also then on the other side, using those analytics and saving off some of the data if you're if you're um, pulling in data that's that you've already given an example for, saving off some of that data so that you can really try to use that to evaluate the model, look at the metrics, make sure they're within the you know the the tolerances that you want. And then use that accordingly, you know, and then it's all about ethics, right? It's all about really trying to just use our superpowers for good, right? And make sure that we've got processes in place and that we're really trying to, you know, do the right thing with AI. And as AI becomes more intelligent, we want to, we want to make sure that it's, uh, that it's helpful and not hurtful, right? Yeah, sure. The technology's not biased. It's us. No, sure. Right. Of course. It seems to me the technology just amplifies the bias. Right. And so we want to make sure that we're that we're looking at that, that we're that we're actively monitoring for those those biases, whatever they might be, because we want to get the true picture of what or the true answer of what we're trying to answer as opposed to something that's skewed. Well, here's the thing that will happen, right? So there's let's say you've got let's just for the sake of simplicity, say you've got a hundred records in a, in a data set. And um, you're noticing after you've trained 
after you've trained it um, with another data set, that there's a particular outlier that seems ridiculous, right? Maybe it's um, you're calculating the trip, the, a five-mile trip, and it's like $1,000, right? So mm-hmm. obviously there's some bad data in there somewhere. So you go in and you look and you see, oh, I see what this is. There was a typo where somebody entered their fare and, you know, put an extra zero or extra two zeros in there. And that's mm-hmm. that's a problem. So you take that one out. And now, you know, it, it looks almost okay, but there's still some ridiculous numbers coming out of it. So you go back into the model and you start, you just start pruning it, right? You start fixing errors and in, in fudging numbers, right? And after a while, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, how do you know when to stop? Well, I don't think you ever want to fudge numbers, right? You want to, if there's, if there's something, I think what you want to do in those situations, you want to try to repair the data as best you can in, you know, with oversight, with audit, with a clear, you know, those clear trails that you have. Does that mean just removing the, the wonky numbers that are obviously wrong? I mean, what if you don't know if they're wrong? They just... Well, that's just it. I was just going to say, how do you know if they're wrong? So you, yeah. what you want to do then is try to use other other means, whether it be through AI or just, you know, investigatory work like we've done in the past to try to figure out, okay, where is that coming from and why, what what is making that anomaly occur, right? And so once again, it's just grist for the mill to try to really come up with not only tuning our question, but then also understanding what the good answer looks like, right? What yeah. the correct answer looks like. It's kind of like the old way that they they trained bank tellers how to how to identify counterfeit money. Mm. They train them to really know that twenty dollar bill or that hundred dollar bill so well to feel what the you know the the different pieces of the engraving look like. Yeah maybe even the smell, whatever, they know what the ideal is so that when something occurs off, they go, oh, wait a second, something's not right here. Right. And so the closer we can understand what that ideal is, that's going to be another tool in our arsenal to be able to go, mm, no, this does not look right. Yeah. So we really have to, it, it, it comes back a lot, I think, to really understanding our data, really understanding what we're trying to measure, what the question is, and then also what the under, also having a good idea of what those tolerances are on the other end. Mm. So we have kind of a triangulation, if you will, to actually really be able to eliminate biases, um, clean our data as best we can, you know, and then yeah. pre-process it. And Every time we do a show on uh, machine learning or predictive analytics or anything, it always comes down to, you know, data scientists spend most of their time cleaning data or at least they used to. Right. Yeah. But I also think this, this you're coming at it with certain biases, the machine, you know, may reflect some of those biases, but sometimes Mm. the machine stuff finds stuff you don't want. So you've you've got this interesting smell test of it might produce results that are accurate that you didn't expect. Like it's interesting to have to scrutinize Mm. that. You know, is it you? Is it it? Is it actually the data? Like, they, you, right. there are three different variables here. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, toolkits or frameworks like ML.net allow you to have um, a way to use that information offline in your application 
to be able to then easily pull in the learners that you need to be able to pre-process some of that data, train the train the model, evaluate the model, and then predict that model and pull that uh, pull that information back out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What are some of the cool um, sample apps that you guys have built with uh, ML.net? Well, there's um, obviously there's uh, the sentiment analysis that we talked about. Mm-hmm. We've got um, a taxi fare predictor. I think I've already talked about that, a little bit about regression. Um, the one that most people start with is just trying to predict what uh, an iris flower, how many petals and things like that are on there. And huh. so that's that's there as well on the uh, ML.net start page. But then if you go to uh, machine learning dash samples, um, the team has put together um, quite a few uh, kind of cool samples. One is a GitHub labeler that basically... Um, trains your your model on your labeled GitHub issues to teach the model what labels should be assigned for a new issue. So that's kind of cool. And it's using multi-class classification to look Mm. at several different things and also the text featureizer to kind of pre-process your data, take out, uh, um, you know, make sure that it's, uh, you know, maybe lower lower case or something like that. Mm. But it allows you to, to play around with that. And so there's the the point of you know what we're trying to do at docs and the repos and things like that is just to give um, the users and the people in the trenches the best information they can to be as immediately productive as they, as they possibly can. Yeah, that's great. Awesome stuff. Yeah. Do you need GPUs and things like we talked about this at the top of the show? But you know, what kind of compute resource are we talking about here? If you're going to run it off, especially offline, like on a workstation. Yeah, really, it's it's more about the software than the hardware. Um, you know, ML.net is really, they, they've tried to really make it as performant and as efficient as possible, and it actually runs pretty pretty darn well, pretty quick on even my Surface machine. Sure. Hmm. So, really, it, it's amazing what, uh, what the engineers have been able to do with this to create a full-on... NuGet package that has a pipeline that you can just pass things through that stays in context and uh, runs pretty darn fast. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, and I guess even if you don't support GPUs directly now, you could later. I mean, the upside to being in a framework like this is if it becomes an issue, this is just an implementation issue. Although yeah. you guys call, right. are able to call into other libraries. Like if you started supporting CNTK or TensorFlow, because both those things definitely use GPU training. Right. There that's a it's been it's been created to be extensible and so that's a you know that's coming. Event or I mean working with CNTK that's a one of the things that the the team is working on, you know, on different platforms things like that. Mm. And I know that they're putting out uh there's a roadmap out on the repo in terms of what features are coming when. They're releasing new trainers all the time. And so, um, you know, the, the thing is, working with the, the hardware and the GPUs and stuff is really transparent to the user. Yeah, so you, you don't need to know. It'll just happen. Right. You have the source code. You can use something like Hybridizer. Right. Right, from NVIDIA. Sure. But, I mean, they've done it so that really you don't have to. Yeah. They've got a lot of optimization going on there, even down at the CPU level. It's pretty darn cool what they've been able to accomplish. And it's really, it's actually based on an internal framework that was created with Microsoft Research and is used in some of the ML features in Office and Bing and all sorts of stuff. So it's been around for a while. 
Right, yeah. We haven't really talked about this, but you guys have been doing this internally for a long time. You're just surfacing mm. a technology for us to use. Yep. Right. Yep. Dog-fooded for your protection. That's right. <laughs> and for your efficiency. So, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, John, it's been great talking to you. And uh, hey, man, we'll see you in uh, Sydney. I know that. But we'll probably see you before then. I am so looking forward to seeing you guys. If it takes as long as in Sydney, great. You know, whenever, wherever. I love your show. Um, you know, just as a, a, a little a little plug for you, Carl, um, Music to Code By mm. is what I listen to day in and day out. Awesome. It's on my... Pl- I mean, it is... That's what I code by. It is... If you don't have it, you should get it. Yeah. It's it's a great contribution to the developer community by Mr. Franklin. Why, thank you, sir. It's, it's my secret weapon as well. Yes. All right, guys. We'll uh, call that a show. John, we'll see you sometime soon. Yeah, I look forward to it. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a-